0: Join Anthony Esselin, John Wark Montgomery, Beverly Yonke, Mark Haltoff, Ryan Anderson, Todd Wilkin, and yours truly for the fall 2018 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference Friday, November 9th and Saturday, November 10th in Dallas, Texas. To learn more, register at issuesetc.org. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, August 24th, 2018. Short episode today, light, but a little more Gervais Charmley. For tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop, open up your Bible and compare, compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word, to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostlelets, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex— as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that's put forward for consumption by the average evangelical is far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. In fact, it's like not even close anymore And uh, so this is a warning work and a teaching work that we do here. Now, today, uh, we're going to do just a short episode, no commercial break. We're going to listen to the next installment of Gervais Charmley's uh, work on the book of Jude. We're up to Jude verses uh, 20 through 21, and the name of the message is titled, Building Up the Church Church. Let's get to it, and then we can get on to our weekend. Here is Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley.
1: Our scripture reading this evening is the Epistle of Jude. The Epistle of Jude, written by Jesus' half-brother Jude, was son of Joseph and Mary. And he was only converted after the resurrection of the Lord. This letter is probably one of the later books of the New Testament, probably one of the last books of the Bible written, and it's about the need to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So... The book of Jude. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them! For they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the wind. Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the lutes. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch The seventh from Adam prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. And they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Saviour who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And may God bless the reading of his holy word. And we've come as we look through this epistle to verse 20 Jude has been describing at great lengths the false teachers and Jude's epistle like so many of Paul's is divided on the one hand, first of all you have the passages that are indicative, descriptive teaching and then you have the application he's been speaking of what false teachers are like of why there is a need to contend. And now he comes to the application. How do we apply what he has said? And what's fascinating is his first point of application has nothing to do with getting rid of false teachers. But it's a positive thing. It's in order to resist false teachers... The church has to, build, have to be built up, has to build itself up in your most holy, on your most holy faith. But the church must, and it's, these are all corporate. It's very easy for us as modern Western people to, to read these use as individual but they're not they are corporate they are the group, they are the church the people of God, the community they are a together building up and to keep yourselves in the love of God and that's the center of these two verses keep yourselves in the love of God first of all Jude says Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. And it is a present present tense. It's a, a present continuous. Building, always building. That's because the church, the people of God, are always growing, always building, always learning. Where there's life, there's always growth. And so it is that First of all, there has to be the right foundation. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. The church is a building. It's a a metaphor that is used again and again in the Bible. The metaphor of the building that is the church. So for example, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter Chapter 2 puts it like this, First Peter chapter 2, reading from verse 4. Coming to him, that is to Jesus Christ the Lord, as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Living stones being built up. And it's this same idea of a building, that the church of God is a building. There are those who, well, who you talk about the church, they're very, very quick to say, well, oh, the church isn't a building well there's a sense in which the church is a building now it's not the, the building in which we meet but it's the building that is made out of the living stones who are the people of God it is the temple in which God dwells by the Holy Spirit so again the Apostle Paul uses similar language here in 1 Corinthians Chapter 3, reading from verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. And in context, the other who is doing the building is to do with the church leaders, who by their ministry, by their leadership... Uh, and, and the teachers who are, by their teaching, building up the church. And so, verse 10, According to the grace of God which has given me as a wise master build, I laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And so again, you have this picture, the church is being built up. People are added to the church and through that the church is built up. But also people who are believers are themselves being built up, being knit together. There are so many processes involved in building. Again, Ephesians 2.20 in fact, from verse 19, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And of course, household house is the, really the same word. Uh, Paul is playing on words here, which is something that happens a lot in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, word play is very common in the Bible And again, Colossians chapter 2, reading from verse 6, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. That there is a building up, the development, the growth. And it is a, a development, a growth, a building up in the most holy faith or on the most holy faith, he says here. Because the picture here is that the the faith is the foundation. And the faith is objective. It's well it's what he's written of already, of course, in verse three, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The content of Christian belief is definite, decided, and certain. It's not something that changes. The content of Christian belief is established by the Bible. It is what is sent down from heaven. The Bible alone is God-breathed, inspired, given by inspiration of God. Nothing else is. There are many other things that are useful, that are helpful, but nothing other than the Bible is given by inspiration of God. And so the faith, the content of Christian belief, is what is drawn out of the Bible, is what is contained in the Bible. And there's so much in the Scriptures. But anything that is part of the Christian faith must either be based on the the definite, clear statements of Scripture or legitimate inference from Scripture. So for example the doctrine of the Trinity that there is one God the one being of God but within the one being of God there are three persons. That statement that I've just given is not anywhere given in the Bible but It is an accurate summary of what the Bible teaches. So we have in the the front hall in the foyer there the FIEC Statement of Faith, which is a very, very basic statement of of the fundamentals of evangelical Christianity. And everything there has been drawn out of the Bible. And the Christian faith is all based on the Bible that God has spoken in the prophets and he has spoken by Christ Jesus. And this is what is to be taught. So that the the church is not concerned with anything other than the faith. Now the faith has effects on every part of life. How we think about everything Is affected by the faith. But what the church is all about. What is to be taught in the church. Is the Christian faith as in the Bible. Not men's opinions. Not men's ideas. But the word of God. And that's why it's described as your most holy faith. Most holy you notice that Jude does not say your holy faith. He says your most holy faith. And as we've seen looking at this book, Jude is so incredibly tightly packed, there are no words in Jude that don't need to be there. Every word needs to be here. Indeed the very fact of the verbal inspiration of the scriptures that these things that are written are exactly what God wanted to be written they are God breathed in the writing means that every word matters so your most holy faith emphasizing the holiness And of course we are called back, we are recalled to the call of the prophet Isaiah that's recorded for us in Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah records that in the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now in Hebrew, if you want to emphasize a word, you'll repeat it. In English, that's generally considered a bad style, but in Hebrew that is proper Hebrew. So to say holy, holy, holy is to say that God is perfectly holy. The faith is most holy because it comes from the most holy God. It is about the most holy God and it makes people holy. That's why writing to even the Corinthians, who were a very messed up church in many ways, the Apostle Paul can say, 1 Corinthians 1-2, To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified, that's made holy, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, With all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. call to the saints, of course sanctified saints forms the same word. Holy people. The Bible, one of the reasons why in English we have referred to it as the Holy Bible is because the Bible teaches the faith. Which is most holy in its origin, most holy in its content, and most holy in its result. It is a sanctifying faith. And so God's people, God's church, is built up on your most holy faith. How then is it built up? Well, we then have this really Trinitarian point that is made here, praying in the Holy Spirit keep yourselves in the love of God and in the New Testament where God appears without being qualified, it's the Father looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, Trinitarian as we know the order that is given Referring to the, to the Trinity is not always the same order. The normal order is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in the grace, it is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So Christ, Father, Spirit. And here it is Spirit, Father, Christ. And there's a reason for that. First of all, praying in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is deeply and intimately involved in prayer. Now, every believer, of course, has the Holy Spirit. Paul, uh, so Judas just said in verse 19 that the false teachers are sensual persons not having the Spirit. So false teachers, heretics, cannot pray in the Holy Spirit. And that means they cannot pray at all. Because there is no such thing as true prayer without the Holy Spirit. But on the other hand of the Christian, it is written, reading Romans 8, reading Then from verse 8, So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. There's no such thing as Christians who don't have the Holy Spirit. Now there are people who call themselves Christians who don't have the Holy Spirit, That they are not real Christians. The true Christian has the Holy Spirit. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And again, verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, Abba it, is the a familial Ar- Aramaic way of referring to Father. It's not baby talk, <coughs> as some have falsely misrepresented. It, it's... It's what an adult son would say to his father. Martin Luther renders it as my dear father. So that it's a form of address that you use throughout your life to your father. And it's an intimate term of address. It's not the more formal abinu. But it is Abba, my dear Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So here we have the point that we are only able truly to say, Our Father who is in heaven by the Holy Spirit. And the very beginning of Christian prayer is, Our Father who is in heaven in heaven and again Romans eight, twenty six. likewise also the spirit also helps in our weaknesses for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought but the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered the Holy Spirit himself again praying in the Holy Spirit, prayer is a very difficult thing. It's something that the Lord Jesus Christ labored in prayer with sweat and tears and cries. It wasn't a formal exercise for him. Praying in the Spirit is not a formal exercise. It is a, a very deep, difficult thing that only by the Holy Spirit can it be done? Again, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18. Ephesians six eighteen. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me. That I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of of the gospel prayer for Christian workers there praying in the spirit, only by the Holy Spirit can anybody pray keep yourselves in the love of God now keep yourselves in the love of God we may look at that and say but Isn't it God who keeps us? In a sense, of course, yes it is. But it's a both and. It's not keep yourselves because God isn't keeping you. But keep yourselves and God is keeping you. It's very similar to what we find in the book of Philippians. The letter of the Philippians, the apostle, writes in Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only... But now much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The apostle, the Bible, knows nothing of this idea of let go and let God. The Keswick teaching that arose in the 19th century that said that Sanctification is the result of a cessation of your own effort. Rather, the Bible says sanctification is a result of your effort and God's effort because it, and ultimately of God's effort that is in your effort. So the only reason you're able to do anything is that God is working, and yet you do as well. Work out, for it is God who works. It is a a deep and great mystery, but it is true. Now, indeed, the apostle says in Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. But also, as Jude says, keeping yourselves Because God is the one who keeps us, he's described by the psalmist as the one who keeps Israel who neither slumbers nor sleeps. It's one of the those psalms that because of the word of the vocabulary it's always studied by anyone who's studying Biblical Hebrew. So it's one that you get drilled into you at seminary, which is a a wonderful thing to have. He who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. He keeps, we keep. The two go gloriously and wonderfully together. Because it's not something that happens apart from God's work, but it's our response to God's work. It's part of God's work. So again we find expressed in the Gospel according to John, John chapter 15 and verse 9. As the Father loved me, I I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And you see, the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no possibility that he will cease to keep the commandments and cease to abide in the love of the Father. That's impossible. So too, God's people do not cease to abide in God's love because he keeps us even as we make that effort. And that means that our labours, our efforts are not in vain. We, it's not keeping yourselves always afraid that you will fail but it's keeping yourselves knowing that God is at work in that same keeping keeping yourselves in the love of God it's a wonderful expression the love of God and and it's important to emphasize that it's his love for us it's not our love for him It's the love of God as in the love that belongs to God. That the love, the Christian knows the love of God and participates in the love that God has. So we have in that glorious, so memorable passage in... 1st John chapter 4 beloved verse 7 beloved let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God he who does not love does not know God for God is love in this the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him in this is love not that we love God but that he loved us And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. His love for us. That love that is manifested in the cross. And so we are to keep ourselves in that love. In the knowledge, the experience of that love. And we do so in many ways. One of the chief ways that we do so is in... Studying the scriptures because the scriptures are the revelation of the love of God for his people. Another is in the regular observance of the the ordinance of the Lord's table. Coming around the Lord's table remembering this is how God loves us. The love of God is manifested in the Son's offering of himself. Do this in remembrance of me. In our sharing love one with another, sharing in the church. Again, we keep ourselves, again corporate ourselves, plural, in the love of God, in showing love one to another. And the love of God, here, is the love of the Father. It's of vital importance that we never, never imagine that the the love is the especial property of the Son of God. When we find the love of God mentioned, as in John 3.16, "...for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son..." It's a love of the Father. The love of the Father the love of God should centre in our minds in the Father, because that's what the Bible says that the Father's love is central here, the love the Father has. And thirdly, in this great Trinitarian passage, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. How is the Son involved at this point in the, the building up of the Church of God? It's in the fact that our blessed hope is in the Son. The blessed hope. I've quoted it many, many times because it's a vital passage to remember. But it's Titus. Titus speaks of the blessed hope Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. There's the forward look, you see. And then there's a backward look, who gave himself for us. That he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself, his own special people, zealous for good works. The blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. That's the blessed hope of the church. The the church has to be forward-looking. And forward-looking in the sense of looking toward the second coming. Not in the sense of silly speculations and people trying to work out the date. That doesn't work. Jesus said, "No, no one knows the day or the hour. And by that he meant that there's no way you can work out the time. He he did say, be always ready, because you do not know at what hour the Son of Man is coming. And we are looking forward. There is a future image. There is, if you will, a coming sunrise that we are looking for. The church cannot be focused on the present but must be always looking forward, always considering. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, reading from verse 9, For they themselves declare concerning what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come the Thessalonian church was marked by the fact that they were look they were waiting for the second coming of the lord not in the sense of sitting back and doing nothing, they were serving the true and living God, serving is active, but that in all their service there was a forward look, there was the fact Christ is coming, Christ is coming. And I i worry sometimes that the the church too readily forgets that today. But Christ is coming. The devil has many devices, and one of those devices is to make the truth look ridiculous by exaggerating and falsifying it. So, all of these silly eschatological Second Coming end time speculations are designed to make the doctrine of the Second Coming look silly look ridiculous. But they don't. They just demonstrate how something can be abused. A principle i found very helpful in life is that the abuse of a thing does not constitute an argument against the thing itself. The abuse of a thing is not an argument against the thing itself. The abuse of the doctrine of the second coming is not an argument against the doctrine of the second coming. It's an argument against the abuse of the doctrine of the second coming. And so you have the most ridiculous things said, and so people of the church say, you don't want to be identified with those crazies. Let's not talk about the second coming. But the second coming is our our blessed hope. It's what we're looking for. It's what gives the church, it's what gives believers a certain energy because we look at this present wicked world and we say that this isn't forever this isn't where how it's going to stay Christ is coming so we're not downcast by the state of the world we don't say oh things just get worse and worse and worse and keep getting worse Christ is coming and will wind up the present age so If we are looking for the the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, if we're looking for the, the consummation, the end of the age, then we go, but this isn't how it's always going to be. It's not always going to be like this. We don't just have this constant slog with nothing at the end of it. Christ is coming, we don't know when he hasn't told us, he's told us that we can't know when but when he comes then there is the fullness of eternal life there's a sense in which we can speak of Christians having eternal life right now but most of the time very often the Bible uses the language of eternal life speaking of the life always the life of the age to come now we can experience it now because in Christ the, the life of the age to come has come forward, has invaded, as some have put it, the present age. But it is the life of the age to come and the full experience is in the age to come. So, Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, for example we'll read from verse 27 then Peter answered and said to him see we have left all and followed you therefore what shall we have so Jesus said to them assuredly I say to you in the resurrection when the son of man sits on the throne of his glory you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel that of course is a reference to the apostles and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands to my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Perhaps one of the best-known passages that speaks of eternal life as a future blessing is in Matthew twenty-five forty-six. Speaking of the last judgment. And he's just been speaking of the last, of the judgment of the wicked. And he says, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And our English translation at this point has slightly obscured the fact that the word translated everlasting is the same as the word translated eternal. That is to say that you have on the one hand the the punishment of the age to come, and on the other you have the life of the age to come. That both of these are pertaining to the age to come. And that age is an ongoing, an eternal, an everlasting age. Again, the righteous go into everlasting life at the coming of our Lord. He comes, his second coming, and receives his people unto everlasting life. It's a wonderful thing to look to. And it's describes the mercy, the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, it is totally undeserved. It is something that is given as a free gift. That nothing of the sense of deserving enters into it. It is his mercy that we look for. And so when we look to the second coming, we're not to think in terms of, well, what have I done? But we're to think, what has he done? What what will he do? He has had mercy. He will have mercy unto everlasting life, unto eternal life. And he's a gift. Of his mercy. And so here we are exhorted. As the people of God. Let us together do what Jude says. Let's make sure we've got the right foundation. It's vital to have the right foundation. Just got last week the, the new issue of Current Archaeology magazine. Which has a big article on Fonthill Abbey which was the ma- this amazing country house with this gigantic tower. The trouble was, the tower was built on a foundation that was intended for something a great deal smaller. And so this soaring Gothic tower came crashing down. It was on the wrong foundation. So the foundation you build on is absolutely vital. Today, there's nothing, nothing left of Fogtel Abbey it wasn't really an abbey it was a romantic country house today there's nothing left because it was built on the wrong foundation make sure you've got the right foundation make sure the church must be fixed on the foundation of our Lord Jesus Christ the foundation of the faith we pray we build upon it with prayer We build upon it with Bible study. We build upon it and we keep looking for the coming of the Lord. Waiting, not in idleness, but in activity. Watch and pray. Do as we all follow the Lord, looking for his second coming. Because his coming is sure. And it is so. May God help us then to hear His word. Amen.
0: So, what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at com. or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.